Cornerstone Bible Fellowship's online sermons. Join us each week as we dig into the truths of God's Word. You can find our sermons online at cbf.us slash sermons. We'd love to have you join us for a worship service this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at our campus at 7351 Warden Road in Sherwood, Arkansas. Now, let's listen to this week's sermon. We would open your Bibles to John. You can bring the lights up. I'm used to seeing everybody's beautiful faces here. And it's, there we go, there we go. John chapter 1. Before we look into that, we're going to have a time of prayer. And just, uh, I'm going to do just a slight little different thing. We've been praying, and I do want you to continue to pray for those people in your life that you know that are lost and or spiritually need a, a work of, of the Holy Spirit in their life. But I also want to take just a moment. We worship a God that is bigger than just our little area. And there was a tragedy that happened this week in New Zealand. And we have missionaries. We have people there that uh, trying to answer questions for people that, that ask them about God. I know it was a, a Muslim thing, but just... They ask those questions and to pray for our missionaries that are overseas, that are in places like that. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and pray for God to help them and sustain our missionaries that are dealing with things overseas. Lord, we do thank you that you are a great big God, the God of the universe. And Lord, there are things that happen there are people today that are, are suffering and struggling, not call around us or in our midst, but all throughout this world. And Lord, we have those that have heeded your call that are in other parts of this world to share the gospel, to tell people about you, to share their only hope that they have. Lord, I pray that you sustain them, you strengthen them today and always. In your name I pray. Amen. I'm going to share a little story about when my wife and I first found out we were going to have our first child. Um, it was about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, and, and uh, well, we were not, we just didn't pay attention to the obvious signs. She had been kind of sick a little bit. She had been falling asleep at like 6 o'clock at night, which I was like, well, that's not normal, but hey, you know, she was teaching summer school at the time. I thought maybe it was really difficult, but... It really kind of came together. We were on vacation. We were down in, in Florida at a water park. And we had walked to the top of one of the water slides. You know, we had gone up the, the steps and we got to the top and she was just kind of struggling. And I was like, are you okay? And she said, you know, I'm just, I'm feeling nauseated. I just, it was all I could do to get up here. And I said, well, do you think you could make it back down? And she said, yeah, I think I can. And he said, do you, do you reveal a little bit about myself? Do you think you can make it by yourself? back down and she just kind of looked at me and she's still married to me but hey she did she went back down and we we got i i went down the slide and uh we hung out we were sitting there at this picnic table for the next hour or so and she just kind of she's like well I, I think maybe you know i might i might be pregnant and i was like no no that's not not i mean i know we're trying but no that's that can't be the case and she said well, when we get back we're gonna head back to we were living in mississippi at the time she said i'm gonna take a test and okay so we got back to Mississippi, and she took the first test, and I, I don't remember if it was one line or two lines or whatever signified that you were pregnant, but it said that. And she showed me. She said, see, it, it says I'm pregnant. And I was like, no, that one line's too faint. It's not quite 
as dark as the other line, that's not true. Now, she says she did three tests. I say it was only two. She said she did it again, and I still went, no, it's not quite dark enough. So then I finally went back to the store and bought one of those ones that says pregnant, not pregnant. I mean, you know, she came out and she said, here you go. And it said pregnant. And I just kind of, I don't have a chair, but I sat down in the chair and I was, whoa, I don't know why. I mean, you know, it's what we were hoping for and praying for. But I had to, I had to run to Walmart right after that to pick up something. I don't even remember what it was, but I remember getting in the car by myself. She was there and I was driving to Walmart and I was praying. And my prayer was, God... Thank you that we get nine months to try and adjust and figure out how, you know, I've got to make a room into a nursery and just, I'd never changed a diaper. I had no earthly idea how to do any of that stuff. Thank you for this time that I have to prepare for this, this change. And now four of them later, I can change a diaper like that. You know, I'm glad I don't really have to do that anymore. But, uh, but as we move on here in John to the last part of the prologue, verses 14 through 18, we get to an in-depth look at what's called the incarnation. It's when Jesus came as a child. And and the birth of my my son and and the other three sons and my daughter, I mean, it's it's a beautiful, amazing thing. It's just, it's great when we see babies and children and all of that, but that's not an uncommon thing. But the birth of Jesus Christ was unlike any other ever and unlike any that will ever be. And John, in this, he's kind of talked about this as we've gotten to this point. But verses 14 through 18, he really focuses on what we call the incarnation or, or what we see in that first line. The word became flesh. That Jesus, that God, that the word came down as a human being, as a man. Now, I'm going to give you a big phrase or big word today, a big theological term called the hypostatic union. Did you get that? Write it down. You can go tomorrow morning to work wherever you go and say, what do you think about the hypostatic union? And people will be like, well, that guy's on to something. It just means that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He was something totally different. I mean, it doesn't. how do you have 100% of two things? I can't explain it. That's what the Bible teaches us as we're going to see. And John, as he gets to verse 14 and these, these 14 through 18, as I've mentioned before, Matthew and Luke were written before this. Matthew and Luke kind of contained the, the, I guess, the natural account of the birth of Jesus that, you know, Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds and all of the, the stories at Christmas that we have and everything that we see there. And so John doesn't give us any of that kind of detail, but he gives us more the theology of the incarnation. What happened when Jesus came in a, in a theological sense? And what are the implications for us? He helps us understand what, what took place. And it's something that, as we'll look at this morning and we see, it's all of the things that we just sang about. That he is, it's a wonderful name, a beautiful name, a powerful name. It's the only name. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning in the honor of the reading of God's word as we look at John chapter 1, verses 14 through verse 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Lord, I thank you for the reading of your word this morning. I thank you for its truth, its timeless treasure of truth in our lives. I pray this morning as we look at this word, Lord, that when we leave here, we are even more closely connected with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. As John writes here about the incarnation, he gives us four things that we have to understand about it. Four things that are important in our lives as Christians to help us have a correct understanding of Christ, who he is, and why he came. The first in that first verse 14 is the nature of the incarnation, the nature of it. The first line, and the word became flesh. John here picks up on the theme if you go back to verse 1. Remember in verse 1 he said, in the beginning was the word. That's the Greek word logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He hadn't really talked about that since. But now when he gets to verse 14, he brings it back in. And the logos, the word, became flesh. That what he was talking about there in verse 1, this being that was in the beginning, this being that was with God, this being that is God, this same being now has flesh, is a human being. But what we need to understand in this verse is it doesn't mean that Jesus, when he came down to earth, set aside his divinity or became something less than God. Throughout history, there have been many heresies or, or, or heretical understandings they have when it comes to how do you explain his divinity and his humanity. They have been around and they're still around, as we'll see in just a moment, today. In John's day, there was a, a heresy called docetism. There's another one. You can hypostatic union, docetism, you'll be all set for this week. Docetism was, it came along kind of with the idea of Gnosticism. If you remember when I was talking about that, where spirit is good, physical is bad. And Docetism kind of tried to deal with Jesus saying he was just a man up and until his baptism. At his baptism, the spirit of God, or he became divine, but he lost his physical form. He became kind of like a phantom. I don't really know how you describe it. And then right up until right before his, his uh, crucifixion, at that point, his spirit ascended away from him and just the mere man was crucified and this was a way for these folks to try and make sense of their their heretical views of of jesus and god and matter and all of that and this was around during the days of john who wrote this gospel john lived a long time he lived probably up past 100 a.d or give or take somewhere in that vicinity he lived a while and it was said there's an account of him john that he was in his life he was going to a public bath which was a common thing in that day and upon entering he found out that there was an adherent of this heresy docetism and when he found out he was so appalled he got up as quick as he could got his stuff and began to get out of the building and as he was leaving the building he said to everyone in there you all better leave because old so-and-so is in here and god may cause the walls to fall down and kill him because of his heresy and you'll all be caught in it too he did not he had such a, an understanding of the truth of who Jesus was that when people got off he, off on it he couldn't stand it 
We see this most clearly in the or in First John. John wrote the Gospel of John, Revelation, in First, Second, and Third John. But look at what he says in First John chapter four. In First John chapter four, he writes this: "Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this." You know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. There it is. The word has come in flesh. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. John saw it in his day, different heretical views of who Jesus was and what the incarnation meant. And it still exists with us today. We see it often in some of the cults like Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism. In many ways, there's a lot of similarities in, in what we talk about, our moral positions on certain issues, and kind of they kind of use the Bible, maybe some other things, but they have incorrect views of Jesus Christ. He's either a lesser God or he's a God that's in the... In, Latter-day Saints, he's the brother of, of Satan, and there's a God that sent him to the earth and different things, but it's not what the Bible teaches. And for 2,000 years, these types of things have popped up. And what does John tell us? Listen, test these spirits. It's, if it doesn't say that Jesus is, is God in flesh, it's not right. And this is an important thing. God has particular ways that we are supposed to worship him in, in spirit and in truth. And so it's important for us to, that we follow what John says here. It goes on to the next sentence. They're still in the, the nature of the incarnation. It says, the word became flesh. And then it says this, he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father. That word dwelt, depending on what version of the Bible you are using, it may say tabernacled. That's a word we don't use very often. Maybe you use tabernacle a lot. I don't, unless I'm talking about biblical things. But it kind of gives reference to the Old Testament, the tabernacle, and then the temple. Our kids have been learning about the tabernacle on Wednesday night, although they're over there right now, or they could probably tell you a little bit about the tabernacle. But it was there in the midst of the, the tribes of Israel. It was in the middle, and it's where they worshipped God. It's where it was the presence of God amongst his people. They had the, 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 the temple eventually replaced it when they settled in their land. But it's where the Ark of the Covenant was, the holy place, the holy of holies, that the spirit of God would descend upon it. It was the glory of God in the midst of his people. The Hebrew word for it, Shekinah, and the Greek word here for tabernacle have the same consonants. And so it's a picture in those languages of, of kind of referencing it for John saying, listen, just as in the Old Testament... The temple and the tabernacle were God's presence among his people. So now, and his glory would come down on it. So now is Jesus Christ. He dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The glory as the only son from the father. Everything we saw and knew of, of, of God in the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple, we now find in Jesus. Remember, John is writing after the resurrection. He's writing after the crucifixion, saying the temple, the tab that, that's not needed anymore. We have Christ. We don't need all of the sacrifices. We don't need all of those things. The glory of God, everything is now found in Jesus. And he's full of grace and truth. 
cannot merit all those prominent things we see of need, uh, in, in the essence of salvation. Grace that we cannot merit on our own. It's only through the, the, the love and mercy of God. Grace poured out in our lives. And truth. That we believe the truth of the gospel. Our, our faith is not judged by our sincerity. It's based on whether we believe the truth of what God has revealed. There's a lot in this verse. There was a a scholar who said this of the verse, I have it on the screen, I believe. It says, in analyzing this crucial verse of the prologue, it becomes quickly apparent that this verse is like a great jewel with many facets that spreads its rays of implication into the various dimensions of Christology, the theology of Christ. As a summary of this verse, it may be said that John recognized and bore witness to the fact that the characteristics ascribed to God by the Old Testament were present in the incarnate Logos, the word. God's unique messenger to the world who not only epitomized in person the awesome sense of God's presence in their midst as a pilgrim people, but also evidenced those stabilizing divine qualities God's people had experienced repeatedly. What they had come to know through the temple and the tabernacle and all of the the law and everything that had gone on before them, this verse is saying, listen, this is now in Christ. It's the nature of the incarnation. It's the nature of God becoming flesh and being in our world. John then switches in the next verse back to John the Baptist. Verse 15. If your Bible's like mine, it's actually in parentheses, which they didn't have parentheses in Greek. So this has been added. But it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is the second time in the prologue that John the Baptist is mentioned. It seems kind of odd in this great explanation of who Jesus Christ is that we keep going back to John the Baptist. But if you were here Last Sunday, and I talked a little bit about John the Baptist, that in John's day, not the writer John here, not John the Baptist, but John who wrote this, there were some still followers of John the Baptist in some areas. He had been elevated a little too high. And so here we see two separate times that John the writer says, listen, John the Baptist, great, great guy, but he's not Christ. And here John records part of the message of John the Baptist, what he said. He said, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he comes after me, he ranks before me, because he was before me. John the Baptist is saying, listen, Jesus, he ranks greater than me because he he was before me. Now, chronologically speaking, John the Baptist was older than Jesus. Not by much, but a little bit older than Jesus. So he's not talking about his physical age. And John the Baptist's ministry was before Jesus' ministry. I mean, Jesus' ministry didn't really kick off until he was baptized, For the first 30 years of Jesus' life, he was a carpenter. But at his baptism, which was performed by whom? John the Baptist. So John the Baptist's ministry was before his. So he's not talking about John saying, hey, I'm older than he is. My ministry was before his. But he says he ranks greater than me because he was before me. He's clearly saying that Jesus, not in ways that you guys have observed. Remember, these are people just, it's their day and age. They've seen John was before Jesus a lot in his birth and his ministry. But John is saying, listen, no, he's greater. He's not just some guy for three years, 2,000 years ago that lived, taught some nice things, and then went on about his way. He spans all of existence. He was the creator, and he's still going to be there at the end. My uh, wife has been leading a Bible study on Mondays, Judges. 
And it comes to an end tomorrow night. And they're getting to the final part of the book of Judges. And Judges is an interesting book. A lot of people know about Gideon and Samson and that. But that when you get to the end of the book of Judges, it's if you haven't read it yet, ladies that are in that Bible study, uh, hopefully I have because it's tomorrow, it's a, it's a trip, isn't it? I mean, I don't know how familiar with it, but it, it's everything you've ever seen in some of the most over-the-top, like grotesque horror-type movies doesn't have a it can't hold a candle to the end of judges there's genocide rape murder cutting people up and mailing body parts around i mean it's it's intense but as these ladies i've talked to my wife you know she comes home from the bible studies and talks about what goes on and all of that and and points this the simple truth out that a lot of the ladies have have noticed this is judges is a book that was the events of it took place three thousand years ago give or take over three thousand years ago in another culture on the other side of the ocean that has, just looking at has fair, what similarities does it have to the United States in 2019? People would look at judges and go, what does this, this history have to do with me today? But as you read that book, you recognize a lot. When you read those last few chapters of Judges, you go, oh man, look at what these people are doing. You go, well, is it that much different than today? I mean, this week we had a guy take a a video camera into a room and videotape himself killing as many people as he could. We have sex trafficking that goes on all throughout our culture here in Little Rock. Abortion. We have just, I mean, you name it, we may think a lot different than what it was 3,000 years ago. We may think we're sophisticated, but really we just have better hygiene and better medications, a little more technology. But human beings don't really change. And the truth of that is is found here when John the Baptist says, Jesus came before me, he'll be there after me. Wherever we're living, wherever we are, no matter what we're going through, we know Jesus is there. That's what John is telling us. He's reminding us of that. We don't have to. The incarnation says he came here, he was before that, and he's after that. It's a comforting, comforting thing. To all of us. In the next verse, we have the results of the incarnation. Verse 16 says this, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That word great, the, the phrase grace upon grace, it's like an Old Testament idiom. You remember Holy of Holies or Song of Songs? This is like grace of grace. It's the greatest grace. And verse 16 really picks up at the end of verse 14. At the end of verse 14, it says this, From the Father, full of grace and truth. That full of grace and truth. And then he says this. From this fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. We have received what we need. We have received from God the only thing that that provides us the hope for anything. His grace. His mercy. In Acts chapter 15, there was a controversy that the early church had to deal with. And you've probably heard of it, but sometimes we forget the importance of of what happened, what transpired when this this took place. The Apostle Paul was a missionary, and he was going out all over the world, leading Gentiles or non-Jewish people to Christ. They were professing faith, and that was great, by the thousands. But some Judaizers, those are Jewish Christians, started to come along and say, hey, that's great that these non-Jewish people are getting saved, but they've got to be circumcised. They've got to follow that part of the law. And so this, this controversy was building in Acts chapter 15. It's like the gathering of the clans. They're all showing up, the elders, the apostles, to deal with this issue. 
We're 2,000 years in the future, so we know how it turns out, but they didn't know when they were going into that what was going to happen. And it's crucial because on one hand, if you have to be circumcised, it's grace plus something else. There's something else you have to do. There's something else involved in it. But if it's just salvation through faith, salvation through the grace of God, that's in something different. And so they come together, and, and fortunately for us, we know which way it went, the way of truth. But I think sometimes when we think of, of that issue, grace plus something else, it still haunts us. If I were to say to most people in this room that have been here for years, is salvation by grace or works or effort, they would say, oh, it's by grace. Amen. Praise the Lord. But then there are moments in their life when they sin. Sometimes it's a sin that they've sinned many times. Sometimes it's a particular struggle. Sometimes it's just a certain amount of whatever going on in their life, and they go, God can't love me. Look at what I've done. Look at some of the things I've said, some of the things I've thought, some of the ways I've behaved. He can't love me. And they forget that, well, when you were a sinner, before you professed faith, he loved you. And it's only because of his grace, not your work and not your effort, that you can be in his good graces, that you can be saved. But we always seem to try to drift back into it's up to me, it's up to me, it's up to me. And we need to continue to always go back to the truth of the gospel. I had a, a relative once. I was at a family reunion, and he was talking about a funeral that he attended. And he claims to be a follower of Christ. I don't know him all that well, but he was talking about this funeral. And there came a point in the funeral where the pastor's preaching, and he gets he starts talking about the gospel. And my friend was, he, or my relative there, was talking about this and said, you know, he got to that part, and I'm like, ah. Here we go with the gospel. Been there, done that, have the t-shirt. I kind of cringed because it's, it's almost like, listen, I can check that off the list. I've done whatever is the prescribed thing and move on with my life. But folks, yes, we know the gospel. We've heard the gospel, but you can never go back to it enough times. You can never go back to sit there and say, no matter whether it's been 20 years ago or 30 years ago in my case or 50, 60, 70 years ago, the truth of the fact that it's salvation by grace through faith, not my efforts, is something we need to constantly hear. That when it says here, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, the grace of all graces, that truth should never leave us. And Satan always wants to throw that in our faces. He hates that. And he doesn't want you to believe it. He doesn't want you to live like it's true. He wants you to live like it's just no. But the incarnation teaches us the results of Jesus Christ, the word coming in flesh, was that we can have grace upon grace. Now we get to the final point, the last two verses, the reason for the incarnation. It says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, verse 17 is, is kind of, it's all of a sudden, John brings out the law. Why? For the law was given through Moses, and then grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's clear he's contrasting the two. Law with grace. Was given versus came through. Moses versus Jesus Christ. Speak of the law. Now, he's not denigrating the law. We have to make sure we don't think the New Testament writers ever speak of the laws. It's a bad thing or awful. They never did that. They just said the law was not designed to bring about grace. That was never its intention. The law was to, sh to point us out that we fall short, that we are sinners. I have rules for my kids. 
They hate them, but I have rules for my, my children. And they don't always follow them. They're pretty good, but they don't always follow them. But when they, they, they fall short of my rules, it doesn't mean that the rules themselves are bad. It lets them know how to be in my good graces with dad. And that's kind of what the, how the rules serve. And, and, and the law shows us what God expects and how we fall short. And it was given through Moses, is given through a mediator. You can find out more about this in Hebrews. But grace comes through Jesus Christ. It's not a series of laws or rules or anything. It comes through a person. The law in and of itself offers no hope. But Jesus does. You see, the law was built off of what happened in the Garden of Eden. You remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve sinned, right? Adam and Eve were kicked out. They were removed from the garden. In addition to that, they had curses that were placed upon them. Yesterday, I'm walking around a little gingerly. I'm, I'm trying to redo a bathroom at my house, and there's tile floor I have, I'm trying to chisel out. And I know I'm getting old because what hurts is my legs just from squatting down, trying to, 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 to hammer these things out and getting up every day. So I'm kind of like, ugh. It hurts and it aches, and this all stems back to the curse. When, you know, Adam had to work hard to get what he wanted out of the ground, he's kicked out and all of that, and then there was the curse that went to Eve with childbearing and all of that, and to the, the serpent. And in the midst of that, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have the first promise of God's going to do something, the first promise of redemption. He's talking to you, the serpent says, you'll, you'll, you'll nip at the, or bite at the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed will crush your head. The law can't crush its head. Never will. We can't crush his head. But Christ did. When he was on the cross and said, it is finished. What started there in Genesis chapter 3 kind of is, is, is the hammer's coming down. It's over. Jesus has defeated it. And then the second step on that, that, that rung of the reason for the incarnation is verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That Jesus reveals God. Some people point out in the Old Testament, it says Moses spoke to God face to face. And then they point out that there's other passages that say no one can see God. And, and, and so, oh, the Bible's wrong. No. When it says Moses spoke to God face to face, it's, it's a colloquialism. Doesn't mean it means he spoke to God as, as a person talks to another person. Okay, I don't talk to God like I'm talking to my wife. God doesn't answer me back in an audible voice like that. But it did with Moses. We have you know we say it's raining cats and dogs. It doesn't mean it's actually raining cats and dogs, but it gets across a point. He spoke to him face to face. What we see throughout the Old Testament is when God's presence is even close. It's hard to take. I mean, Moses did get to see the backside of the glory of God inside of a mountain. There's, there's Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1. We read little bits and pieces of these being in the presence of God, and it's, it's, it's overwhelming. But here John says at the very end, the last verse of the prologue, that Jesus has made him known. In John chapter 14, you can just flip over a couple of pages. John chapter 14, this is in the upper room discourse. This is after the Lord's Supper. This is right before the crucifixion. This is when John's or Jesus' disciples had been with him for three years. And he'd seen everything that Jesus had done. And in verse 8, Philip says to Jesus, he says this, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough. 
Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Jesus looks at Philip and says, Listen, you still don't get it. When you see me, you're seeing I'm the incarnate word, God in human flesh. I have declared God to you. I always think of Adam, we go back to Adam and Eve again. You know, Jesus dying on the cross defeats sin, defeats death, ushers in grace. But the other step in what Adam lost when he was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, yes, he had the toil and all of those things, the curse and everything that went along with it, but he lost the relationship the way he had it with God. I've always wondered that. Before sin, Adam had a relationship with God where they, they, they talked. There was no barrier. There was no sin in between them. And after sin, he lost that. And I imagine of all of the things that he struggled with, you know, when he was sore, he was achy, the food wasn't quite right, the animals took whatever it is trying to grow, all of the struggles, I'm sure beyond any of that was what he lost in the intimacy he had with his creator. And the word became fresh through his word begins to bring that back. We can have a relationship with Christ through his word. We begin to have the relationship when the Holy Spirit indwells us. We repent of our sins in turn. We begin to get back to the way it was supposed to be. When God said, it is good. We're headed back to that. That one day, God will complete it when Christ returns. And we will go back to everything being as it was supposed to be. I long for that day. But in the meantime, I know I'm on my way. Because grace came through Jesus Christ. He conquered sin and death. And I can see God because I can see him. John ends his prologue here at verse 18. But he goes through in these 18 verses. And if you haven't read them all together, read them all together. When you go home today, look at them. What he teaches us in here is, is what it means that Jesus Christ came. How it, This is the foundation of everything we, we live for in our lives. When you take away the truth of these first 18 verses, why get out of bed tomorrow? Why do anything? What's the point? How do you make sense of, you know, doing whatever it is that you do? Because you're just going to die and it's over. But because the word became flesh, we have hope, we have meaning, we have purpose. In a moment I'm going to pray and then when I do I'm going to dismiss us. We're going to head home. We're going to go about our week this week. My prayer is before you go to come and talk to me if you need to about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. But like I said there in point three, it's also this. Go back to the gospel this week. When you're struggling, when you're going through whatever it is that you're going through that sometimes causes you to, to your faith to waver a little bit, to get caught up in, well, it's up to me, it's up to me. Go back to the truth of the gospel. And it's because the word became flesh, died on the cross, rose from the dead. I can have a relationship with God. It's not my good works. It's not what I can do. It's because of the gospel, whether you've known it for 10 minutes or 80 years. Would you bow your heads this morning?